Keith and Kristen Getty composed a beautiful little song uh, titled, Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. The song's about marveling over God's creation, God's people, and God's son. And the refrain is a simple little prayer, don't let me lose my wonder. Think about wonder. We observe something special. It catches our attention, and we wonder. We have a sense of awe, of amazement, of admiration. We look up at the shining stars, the radiant stars in the nighttime sky, and we wonder. We see a a little spider's strong and beautiful web, and we wonder. We see God's grace and spirit powerfully at work in his people, and we wonder. We wonder because we notice God's glory in something special. The word wonderful means full of wonder. A dinner was wonderful. An evening with friends was wonderful. The birth of a child was wonderful. One of Herman Bovink's books was given the title, The Wonderful Works of God. God's works are supremely wonderful in his creation and redemption. And as we ponder God's wonderful works, we are moved to wonder at God himself and what our God is able to do. David said in Psalm 9 verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. The prophet Isaiah praised the Lord because of his wonderful work, saying in Isaiah 25 verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Saints, what about God leads people to wonder? Well, God's wonderful knowledge, wisdom, power, holiness, sovereignty, omnipresence, really all of his attributes lead people to wonder. But the wonderful works of God also lead people to wonder. And I think it's true to say that true wonder happens by grace alone through faith alone. God must open a person's heart and mind to know him and in knowing him, wonder. Don't let us lose our wonder is a prayer of believers who desire to know God and to wonder at his glory. We come to another text that reveals for us the Christ but gives us nothing to do. Sometimes we want to jump to doing something. Just give me something to do. I just want to know what to do. And we forget to behold our wonderful king by faith. See, only when we behold the glory of Christ can we glorify Christ. Who has ever done great things for Christ who has been bored with Christ? No one. No one, ever. Our eyes must see the glory of our wonderful king. And as we behold him in his wonderful works in creation and in scripture, we will be moved by the spirit to live for him alone. Seeing the glory of Christ by faith excites wonder. Faith and radical obedience to the Christ Those who are most underwhelmed by Christ are those least able to glorify Christ. 
today's text, it's like gazing at a sunset. It's like gazing up at a sky full of stars. It's like gazing at the Grand Canyon. Wonderful. Wonderful. It is meant to lead you to wonder at the person and work of Jesus Christ our King. And if we truly behold him in the text, if we, by the Spirit, behold him by faith and truly wonder, we will live for him. So let us behold and let us wonder and let us follow. A little review. What did Matthew 21, 1 through 11 show us about our wonderful king. Our king is effectual. He's in control of the details, and he works all things according to God's sovereign and redemptive plan. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He gives commands, and they are done. Our king is humble, gentle, lowly, meek. He rode on a donkey into Jerusalem as the prince of peace. He rode into Jerusalem to vanquish the enemies of sin, death, Satan, and the world to reconcile helpless people to God and to win eternal life for them. He fulfilled messianic prophecies, thus confirming his identity as the Christ. Our king is admirable, and as the son of David, he is worthy of all praise because to him belongs supremacy. If the people were silent, even the rocks would cry out and praise him. His triumphal entry tells us wonderful things about our wonderful king. And Matthew continues to tell us wonderful things about our wonderful king. Which ought to lead us to wonder. And to joyful obedience. Let's behold some more wonderful things about our wonderful king. First, our wonderful king's zeal for the Lord. Now, the chronology is a bit tricky here, folks. Um, It's hard for me to keep the chronology of these events um, in line, but the Gospels arrange the events differently. Matthew, it's helpful to remember, didn't write in strict chronology. Jesus arrived at Bethany on Friday. He spent the Sabbath with friends. Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem. And Mark tells us uh, that Jesus went into the temple and he looked around at everything and left for Bethany because it was late. That was Sunday night. And I think he saw things in the temple that grieved him. And he took time to ponder his response which happened the next day. Monday, he headed uh, from Bethany back into Jerusalem, cursed the fig tree on the way, cleared the temple, and returned to Bethany with the 12. The cross was less than a week away. Now, understand a few things about the temple. People traveled a long way to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, big event. They didn't want to bring an animal to sacrifice at the temple from such a long distance, all right? That would make travel more difficult, and perhaps their animal that they brought from home wouldn't be accepted by the priest, and then what? And so buying a priest-approved animal to sacrifice uh, in Jerusalem, buying it in Jerusalem was easier. But see, they came with foreign currency, So currency exchange was also necessary in Jerusalem. So the sale of animals and the exchange of money for worship at the temple were not evil. They were necessary and they were good, so keep that in mind. 
So it, it was Monday when verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus had entered the temple precincts, the, the huge area, not the temple proper within the precincts. Uh, he was in the outer temple area and he drove out all the animal sellers and their religious customers and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of the pigeon sellers. Something bothered Jesus. Something bothered him. Now, security guards are employed by establishments uh, to get rid of, of troublemakers. You might have been in some of these establishments, and these, these, uh, these security guards are called bouncers. Uh, bounce used to, used to refer to thumping or hitting. Uh, so in other words, bouncers are there to toss people to the streets, all right, who, when they cause trouble, you know, get out of here, and sometimes they literally might toss them to the streets. Jesus arrived, and he saw such a spectacle in the temple that he threw people out. He ejected them. He made them leave the place of worship. And he did it aggressively, overturning tables, overturning seats. Could we call that aggressive? Now, why did Jesus do it when animal sellers and money changers were necessary? Think about it. Where was the business taking place? Inside the temple. Inside the place of prayer. And I think prayer here is a synecdoche, fancy term, meaning a part representing the whole. Prayer represents all elements of worship, like prayer, teaching, sacrifice, prayer. This business was likely happening in the court of the Gentiles, the farthest point Gentiles could go in the temple. Noise, filth, odor, profit, perhaps extortion, right where the nation should be communing with God. Do you see the problem? Do, do fair business. Do it outside the temple, not inside the temple. Jesus said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus was alluding to Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, which I will get to. Now, I want you to think of an old Western movie or a Western TV show where the bandits, they rob the stagecoach and they take the loot back to their hideout, maybe a cave, and they, they have their pistols, and they're shooting it in the air, and they're hollering and celebrating, and they divide the loot, and their hideout is a den of robbers. These sellers, these buyers, these money changers had made God's house a den of robbers. They were desecrating God's house of worship, and that bothered Jesus very, very much. Jesus knew what the purpose of the temple was. Communion with God for the nations. The, the temple was certainly typological of Christ himself. We'll get to that at the end. But under the old administration of the one covenant of grace, the temple was the Lord's house. The place where God met with his people in a unique way. The place where his people gathered and communed with him, and they were corrupting God's house of prayer from inside, Christ would not have it. Now, priests, they oversaw the temple. 
and its worship, why weren't they doing anything? One commentator said, quote, by taking such decisive actions, Jesus is asserting his authority over the center of Israel's religion and identity. Like the prophets of old, he protests against abuses in the temple. As Israel's great high priest, he oversees the proper use of the temple, its worship, and its sacrifices. As king, he exercises authority by governing the central symbol of Israel's faith, the centerpiece of Israel's identity as God's people, end quote. As prophet, priest, and king, Jesus was exercising his messianic authority, power, and holiness to purify worship, to purify God's house. Now, now Jesus had cleared the temple at the beginning of his ministry, This here is a second clearing. John 2 describes the first. And there Jesus said this, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He warned them. And his disciples heard him, and they connected his purging the first time to Psalm 69, verse 9, which says this, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Why did Jesus clear the temple again at the end of his ministry? Well, the corruptions of worship were still there. They didn't repent. Hearts were still far from God. And it's clear that Matthew links his second cleansing to Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. I'll get to that here. But I think even though Matthew doesn't here connect it to Psalm 69.9, it is still entirely right to say Zeal for the Lord compelled Jesus to drive them out a second time. His love, zeal, even wonder for his father moved him to purify worship in his father's house. Wasn't Jesus employing church discipline by driving unrepentant people out? He demanded true repentance. But we also see the Christ welcoming others in. Our wonderful king has incredible zeal for God and pure worship. Father, don't let us lose our wonder. Second, our wonderful king's heart for the nations. You've heard verse 13 a couple times. Here's how Mark 11 verse 17 puts it. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was not simply for Israel. It was a house of worship for the nations. The gospel has always been for the nations. And the temple is only typological of Christ, the person in whom the nations worship God. Jesus was alluding to Isaiah 56 in Jeremiah 7. The connection is striking. Isaiah 56 talks about foreigners or Gentiles joining themselves to the Lord, becoming part of God's one covenant people, even eunuchs. And Isaiah spoke of the nations joining themselves to the Lord, ministering to him, loving him, loving his name, serving him, and holding fast to his covenant. The nations 
And God spoke through Isaiah the prophet, these, the nations, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And likely, all this commerce was happening where? Likely in the court of Gentiles. And was an immense distraction from true and heartfelt worship. Jesus wouldn't have it because Jesus has a heart for the nations. In his day, Jeremiah used the phrase den of robbers to rail against Israel's corruptions of the temple. Jeremiah called God's covenant people to repentance and purity of worship and warned of God's fierce judgment. God sent Jeremiah to rebuke what he loathed, and there Jesus was, years after, the Christ, the preeminent prophet sent from God to rail against the corruptions of worship in God's house. And isn't it noteworthy that years later, the Apostle Paul said to the Gentile church in Corinth, you are God's temple. So I'm going to end with that. Hold that thought. Our wonderful king has a heart for the nations because from the nations he continues to gather people for himself to dwell in them. Don't let us lose our wonder. Third, our wonderful king's love for the law. It's really a simple point. The first four commandments deal with how to love and worship God alone. Jesus loved God. And he wanted the first four commandments carried out in people's lives and in the temple. We could say the same about the last six commandments. People weren't loving God. People weren't loving their neighbor. Christ got aggressive because he loves God and he loves his neighbor. Maybe his actions would cause them to just slow down and think a little bit about their sinfulness, about their lack of zeal for God, about their lack of zeal for pure worship, and their lack of love for their neighbor. Maybe his words would cause them to pause and think. Now, besides conducting business in the wrong place, the businessmen may have dealt unfairly with the people. You could see how that was set up to get a little bit more money. What are people going to do when they need animals at the priest and exchange rates? That would have been very unloving and a further distraction from heartfelt worship. Additionally, if the business was being done in the court of Gentiles, what would that have communicated to Gentiles? Nothing good. Jesus loves God's law because Jesus loves God. He wants to see God's holy law carried out in all of life, including corporate worship. His love for the law stirred him to respond to transgressions of the law. The temple was about communing with God. The temple was about loving God and worshiping and praising God and about doing it together with those who fear God. What is the spirit? What is the essence of the law? Easy. Love God and love your neighbor. That wasn't happening in God's house, and it stirred Christ to take care of the problem, to address it, to do something about it, and this has many applications for today in the church. Don't let us lose our wonder. Fourth, 
our wonderful kings, compassion for the suffering. And this is such a wonderful point. Jesus threw a lot of people out of the temple that day. He drove them away from God's house, but he welcomed others in. Whom did he welcome in? Just wonder at verse 14, at Christ in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. He brought near the helpless people in order to help them. He, he welcomed people to come to him for help. He would not drive them away because a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's our wonderful king's wonderful compassion. Doesn't this remind you of the comfort that Jesus gave John the Baptist when his faith was weak and he was beat down in prison to confirm that he is the Christ Jesus told John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Oh, the wonderful works of Christ. The Christ didn't use socio-psychological manipulation to deceive the crowd into thinking that he was actually healing. He didn't prearrange charlatans to come to him so that he could impress the crowd and make money off of them. He didn't even heal people of psychosomatic symptoms, and I doubt that his healing was showy, though it was very public and though it was very noticeable. Christ actually, Christ supernaturally, Christ divinely, Christ compassionately gave blind people their sight. It happens. He just makes it happen. He gave lame people working limbs. It just happened. He made it happen. And he preached the gospel. And he didn't do these things to get rich off of people. He did these things to express the compassion of God for people. He did it because he loved people. He did it because he was restoring what was marred and distorted and became so grotesque from the fall. It, it wasn't deception. It wasn't magic. It wasn't a show. It was the compassion of our king giving good things to helpless people. Father, don't let us lose our wonder. Fifth, our wonderful king's wisdom for the indignant. How should one's heart respond to the wonderful works of God? Well, how do people usually respond to spectacular events? It was February 1st, 2009. The Pittsburgh Steelers faced the Arizona Cardinals in Super Bowl 43 in Tampa, Florida. 42 seconds remained in the game. The Steelers, hard to believe, were down by three. 
and they were about seven yards from the goal line, Ben Roethlisberger drops back as the defense is just storming in and, and his line holds their blocks and Big Ben launches one over three Arizona Cardinal defenders in the end zone to the back of the end zone to Santonio Holmes whose sword grabbed the ball out of the air, came down to tap his beautiful little tippy toes in the corner of the end zone, and Steelers win the Super Bowl. Now that is wonderful, folks. One of the greatest catches ever. San Antonio, it's, it's beautiful. I love seeing it still. And I'm sure at the time, I don't really remember, but I'm sure I went wild. And Steelers fans across the country went wild. Who didn't go wild? The Cardinals and everybody rooting for them. It was a wonderful catch. And for some, it was wonderful. But for others, it was a gut punch. What made the difference? Well... Love for the Steelers. Listen again to Matthew 21, 15, and 16, and listen carefully. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, pause, they saw with their eyes, their own eyes, the wonderful, the marvelous, the remarkable, the powerful, the compassionate, the good works of the Christ. His wonderful works were absolutely indisputable, and they saw something else that was wonderful, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. The children sensed, children sensed the significance of this historical moment. The children mimicked the crowd, yelling on the mountain. They heard and they copied the praise. Even the children expressed wonder. Even the children expressed praise. And you would think that seeing such wonderful works performed by the Christ and hearing such wonderful praises even by the children would soften them and move them to faith and move them to wonder. But no. They were exasperated by him. Matthew continued, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They were beholding the wonderful redemptive works of the Christ and they were angry. His identity and compassion and love and redemptive power made them angry. Did you get that? His identity, compassion, love, and redemptive power made them angry. They didn't want the children branding him as the Christ or honoring him and praising him as such. They didn't want Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ. They didn't find his wonderful works wonderful because they hated him. Such are all unbelievers today. All of them. They hate Christ. They hate Christ. Only those who receive God's love in Christ, only those love Christ. Only those wonder at Christ. And Jesus had some wisdom for these angry people. Verse 16. 
And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Now what an interesting thing to say at this moment in time. Again, Christ took them to the Old Testament. Have you never read? Jesus Jesus is telling us something about how to interpret the Old Testament, how to read it. We should not unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. We need it. It's part of our story. It's part of our faith. The whole point of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's about him. It's all about Christ, and that's what Jesus is showing here. He took an Old Testament prophecy, namely Psalm 8, verse 2, and he applied it to himself, assuming the identity of the Messiah. When intellectuals and sages were blind in unbelief, God himself put wonder, put praise into little children. The hearts of little children in the temple. He welcomed their wonder. He welcomed their adoration. He welcomed their acclaim. If God could cause stones to cry out in praise, could he not also put wonder and praise in infants for their lips to praise him? Jesus received honor and praise as the Christ, and it infuriated his enemies. Jesus was still sovereignly orchestrating the details leading to the cross. He's in control, folks. It wasn't yet time. The fury needed to intensify, and Jesus ensured that the fury did indeed intensify. Jesus left them, and he went to lodge in Bethany. Father, don't let us lose our wonder. Lastly, our wonderful king's encouragement for the church Now, here's where you and I need to make some connections. And I hope that your heart is full of wonder. I hope that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, full full of wonder at Christ. And I hope that you know how this text can apply to your life, can encourage you and comfort you and, and connect. And I want to make a point about the temple in hopes that you'll take what you've heard so far and see and understand several connections to the church and your life today. The temple was only ever typological of Christ. Priests, the washings, the furniture, the veil, the sacrifices, all of it pointed to Christ, pointed to the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ, When the reality comes, when the reality comes, the type is ended. It's abrogated. There's no more use for it. Christ came and he fulfilled the temple. The temple is no longer needed, ever. Consider these scriptures and follow my train of thought. You really have to lean in here because I'm going somewhere and I want you to be comforted by this. But if you don't listen carefully, you won't see the connections of what I just preached. In John 4, Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at a well in Samaria. And Jesus told this adulterous Samaritan woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place of worship was unimportant when the reality of the temple came, Jesus the Christ. 
One source said about John 4, 23, namely the phrase, the hour is coming and is now here. This is what the, the uh, note said. The time is soon coming when divisions between Jews and Samaritans will be removed and temple worship will be superseded. The time is now here because Jesus is present and has begun the work leading to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. End quote. Now hang with me here. In John 2, Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time. And after, Jesus told the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, yeah, mm mm-hmm, right. And John adds, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Hang tough. Jesus is the true and everlasting temple in whom the worship of God happens. He's what the temple was always about. Jesus is the person in whom God's people commune with God in worship and praise, even infants. Hang with me here. In Ephesians 1, Paul wrote this, and he put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Hang tough. Christ's body is the true temple. Christ's church is Christ's body. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Jews and Gentiles who trust in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ are the body of Christ and individually members of the body of Christ. I'm going somewhere here. And I hope you're tracking with me. The temple is superseded by Christ, who is the true and final temple in whom, by union with Christ, we commune with Christ, with God. We worship God in Christ. Our union with Christ makes us the temple too. Speaking to the church in Corinth, Paul explained, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. And Paul explains this in other places as well, but let me read for you Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple in Jerusalem always only pointed to a greater temple, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true temple, and to Christ's people from the nations who are united to his body by true faith. God lives in his temple. God lives in you and me, gathered together, his people, his church. As we are united to Christ by faith, worship happens in us. 
in his gathered assembly. This is why meeting together is absolutely essential for the body of Christ. Because of all that I've been preaching, this ought to say I'm never missing church. Wouldn't dream of it. Because, man, this has so many applications. I just want to be there. As we are united to Christ by faith, worship happens in us, in his gathered assembly. We gather and God is here. And you can say, God is with me when I'm at home. Yes, he is, but not like he's with us here. There's a difference. He is here with us. That's the whole point of of it it pointing to us in our union with Christ and our togetherness. and, And God is in our midst leading us in worship. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith explains that the temple was momentary and meant to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. The temple's about the Messiah. And it did that, but Christ is the substance to which the temple pointed. It is the substance of the covenant of grace, of the gospel, to which the temple pointed. So now, since Christ the substance has been exhibited, the gospel is understood through much Simpler means like the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments. New covenant. People of God. This building, it doesn't matter if we meet here or out in the yard. What matters is that God meets in our midst through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. We are the temple. And this message of the gospel is for the nations. One wonderful covenant of grace, one wonderful people of God united in one wonderful Christ. This is what the temple was always about. John Calvin came to this biblical conclusion. He said, quote, when he declares that the temple will be a place of prayer for all nations, this mode of expression is equivalent to saying that the nations must be gathered into the church of God. That with one voice, they may worship the true God along with the children of Abraham. Praise the Lord. God, don't let us lose our wonder. And so seeing we are the temple of the living God, brothers and sisters, here are a few applications to think about. I will move quickly. Number one, the church is a place of prayer and worship. When we gather together, God is present with us in a unique and non-replicable way. And when we gather together to worship God, it's not about entertainment, it's not social hour, it's not about social justice, it's about communing with the living God. And the church is not a business, and the church is not a country club, it's not something to make profits. Some people see the church as this huge network uh, from which to draw money and profits. Why do we devote the Lord's Day to gather for worship? Because God is in our midst blessing us. One other thing, sin and problems in the church must be dealt with. We call this church discipline. I've spoken on it before. Jesus showed us by driving out the wicked people from God's house. Hypocrites and false teachers in the church need to be confronted and need to be removed. Unrepentant people must be disciplined because we love God and love our neighbor. That's why we do it. Number two, the church is a place of love and encouragement. We are the temple of the living God. Jesus teaches us in our gathered assembly through his word. When we gather together for worship and praise, God is in our midst. He loves and encourages us. We love and encourage one another 
Jesus welcomed helpless people into the temple. The church is a place for helpless people. Are you weak? Are you weary? Discouraged? Depressed? Disheartened? Anxious? Fearful? Helpless? Are you coming to Christ in true faith? You belong here. You belong here. You will find love from the Christ and encouragement from the word of Christ here. God will provide for all of your needs when you, along with the people of God, come into the presence of God to worship and receive from him. Number three, the church is a place of powerful healing and restoration. Look, I am not saying that if you come to church, your biggest ailments and diseases will be, will be healed. That oftentimes doesn't happen by the sovereignty of God. God may choose to providentially heal you. And we will pray for that and rejoice with that. But as the body of Christ, as the temple of the living God, we, the church, are the place where healing and restoration happens for the soul. Amen? We need him to change us from the inside out because God is here in our midst working powerfully to restore us. We can have hope that he is converting us, that he is changing us, and we will be fully and finally converted to the image of Christ. Number four, the church is a place of wonderful things. Wonderful things happen amidst the people of God, and those things don't happen anywhere else. They don't. The most wonderful of things happen only amidst the body of Christ. Salvation, sanctification, worship, praise, support, encouragement, love. You won't find these wonderful things anywhere else because God uniquely produces them in his people, his temple. You may say, oh, they're a really loving and supporting group, but not at the deepest level because Christ is not the center of it. You only find that in the church, and it's like nothing else because God is within his people. Number five, the church is a place of intergenerational praise. I love that the children were praising Christ in the temple. Even the children celebrated the Christ with faith and with wonder. The church is not simply adults. It's all believers and their covenant children. The church is not 20-somethings that are hip and really good-looking, and they're the ones that are up on the stage singing all the songs. They're like, wow, I'm not a model. I don't belong here. Uh, And it's not just uh, wealthy or affluent baby boomers. The church is those of all ages who gather together to worship the king. Intergenerational praise, even from the lips of nursing infants, happens in the church. Six. The church is a place of confidence in Scripture. Jesus had confidence in the Old Testament. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was all about him. He certainly didn't doubt the reliability and veracity of the Old Testament, of Scripture. He confirmed it. He taught it. He fulfilled it. The church is the temple of the living God inside of which the word of God is joyfully and zealously proclaimed, heard, heeded, cherished, and obeyed. The church is the temple in which God himself dwells and God himself speaks. God is speaking here. This is where God speaks. Through scripture. We don't need any new revelations from God. We have what God wants us to have in his holy scripture. And as the church has since the Garden of Eden, we listen to God's word and we respond with faith 
in it. Saints, there are incredible applications here from this text. May the Spirit help you make those applications. Wonder at Christ. Wonder. Wonder at his person. Wonder at his wonderful works. And allow that wonder to compel you to follow the Christ. Father, don't let us lose our wonder. Father, put wonder and faith in our hearts that we may truly and forever worship and adore and obey you.